0: The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays, and get access to exclusive content, ticket presales to live events, monthly Q and A's with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you.
1: Hello, Ian. Hello, John. Hey, guys. Hey, Glenn. Good to see you. this is Glenn Lowry. Good to see you too, Ian. Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show. Um, I'm with John McWhorter, my regular every other week conversation partner. He teaches at Columbia University and writes for the New York Times. I'm at Brown University. The Manhattan Institute, sponsors The Glenn Show, and it's our honor this week to be talking with Ian Rowe, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and founder of the Vertex, as you can see, of the Vertex Partnership Academies. He is a a charter school uh, advocate and entrepreneur, um, as well as a public intellectual, whose new book, Agency, what's the subtitle, Ian? Oh, my God. The subtitle of my
2: book, let me read it. The Four-Point Plan Free for All Children to Overcome the Victimhood Narrative and Discover I can Their be- Pathway to Power.
1: Oh, what a subtitle. I can be forgiven for not remembering that one. <laughs> well,
2: well, the, the <laughs> author forgot it, so I had to read it from
1: the cover. <laughs> Four-Point Plan Uh, to overcoming victimhood and uh, inheriting your potential uh, agency and power. So uh, we talk about race. We talk about inequality. Ian's an old friend. We've been collaborating on one thing or another for years. Uh, We're both advisors to the Woodson Center, which uh, receives 10% of the net proceeds from the Glenn Show as a contribution to their effort to empower disadvantaged communities of color around the country that's the kind of work that ian yeah bob's been doing bob's been been doing
2: for uh 40 years with what i'm i'm embarking upon or have been trying to embark upon for years he is the standard
1: you are also a podcast host uh tell us about that uh yeah i have
2: two podcasts actually one is called the invisible men um and the other uh, is Are You Kidding Me? with Naomi Schaefer Riley. Um, the Invisible Man, which I do with Nike Phasers, I've had the pleasure of having you both on. Um, That's right. And uh, The Invisible Man, actually, as you might remember, was birthed 30 years ago when Nike Phasers and I were uh, students at Harvard Business School. Uh, and here we were, these two black guys at HBS and you know, lots of possibility ahead of us. And that's when um, the incident in Los Angeles occurred. You know the person, the the traffic incident, and uh, Rodney King, and suddenly the entire country was on fire around race and policing. And here, Nike and I were at Harvard Business School, cocooned. um, And we thought, um, to some degree, invisible. You know, because the narrative at the time, whereas if you're a black man, you are an endangered species, right? You're going to get you're going to get shot. You're going to get shot walking down the street. You can get shot, taking a shower. You're going to get shot. You're just going to get shot, period. And um, (laughs) and I mean, I'm being somewhat facetious, obviously. And that was the the outgrowth of CNN and 24-7 news coverage. So they have to fill the time with all sorts of narratives. and. I remember how that felt. Yeah. Yeah. And Nike and I decided to make a film uh, called The Invisible Men that we got various black men from the Harvard graduate schools with Randall Kennedy. Professor Randall Kennedy was the moderator of this discussion amongst 10 black men from the business school, uh, medical school, ed school, law school to give advice to Daryl this imaginary 16-year-old black kid who was growing up in forgotten USA. And Daryl was watching the news and had no idea that people like me existed, The Invisible Men. So we created that as a film 30 years ago and then resurrected it as a video podcast now where we feature incredible, primarily black men, usually uh, not as visible as the two of you, um, but you know, uh, people who are amazing um, but unfortunately often get kind of hidden in the larger narrative so those are that's my uh, podcast. And the other one are you kidding me with naomi Schaefer riley is all about talking about systems that are supposed to help children but in fact hurt them you know like policies like let's just forgive a trillion dollars in student loans you know things that are supposed to help kids but over the long term actually have quite an adverse impact so those are some of my uh you know seven jobs in addition to being an author and starting a school and all that
0: 91 is what turned me to i've I've often said with glenn that it was during the king affair and finding out that there was only one way i was allowed to think and that that seemed to be true even of the most educated black people if anything more among them that there was only one way i was supposed to think That was when I realized I didn't fit. I didn't think of it as invisible man, but that's when I thought I'm all alone on this and I don't know why. And I thought nobody's crazy, but I thought something is really different with me and I've got to figure this out. Well, you know what's
2: interesting? I remember when I first heard it, heard it occurred, one of my first thoughts was what was he doing to attract that kind of attention from the police? Why was he running from the police? and i realized i wasn't even supposed to ask that question i was just no, supposed to accept no, that... that he just kind of happened to be on the ground being beaten by the police which was a terrible thing but we but clearly i wasn't supposed to even ask and that to me it's like heresy heresy yeah heresy yeah well, <laughs> heresy
1: on stilts with the george floyd situation no
2: Similar, you know, again, a terrible, horrific incident that people should be jailed as they seem to be. Um, But we have to ask the question, what led to that moment? Why were the police called? These are fair questions to ask. and,
0: And I think I feel comfortable saying this a couple years out. I'm not quite with this attempt to make him a hero like what happened to him was a horrible thing but this idea that you take him from boyhood up to that night and make it seem like some sort of parable of the black man trying his best and he's almost some sort of role model and you know there must be somebody who's writing an opera about him right now <laughs> right. I don't quite I don't quite get that you know I don't think he was a monster but there's something a little weird about that that trope as well, well. part of
2: the you know the whole victimhood narrative is that um it rests upon this idea that, it's particularly for Black people, we're cleansed, right? We're cleansed of any kind of violence or proactive action that would justify this kind of behavior that in certain instances comes our way. And I feel we have to fight that, you know? Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't instances, particularly of police brutality, that should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But, when we, like but, that. When, yeah, but yeah. when we get to the point where you can't even ask the question of what were the conditions that led to these incidents, we are robbing our own
1: people of agency,
2: right? We're, we're robbing our own selves of the responsibility of
1: our own behavior. I agree, but I can hear, <laughs> I can hear the counter argument. Uh, you want to talk about conditions. Okay. Well, maybe George Floyd was passing a counterfeit $20 bill, and maybe he was resisting arrest. But the deeper conditions, the conditions of poverty, structural racism, uh, et cetera. I mean, George Floyd had an education or didn't have one. George Floyd had a job or he didn't have one. He came from a community where there were investments being made or were not being made. Um, He was confronted by a system of which Derek Chauvin, the police officer, is merely an agent or representative, but the structures of power that suppress people like George Floyd Uh, run far beyond that, and that the uh, uh, lionization of the individual George Floyd is not a celebration of his way of life. It's rather seizing upon a symbol which is at hand, his murder by Derek Chauvin, to amplify our protest and discontent with the larger structural issues, so that when you uh, fixate, he didn't have his shoelaces tied right, he walked with a limp, he didn't speak politely to the police officer. You trivialize the deep issues of justice and power that are at play in an incident like George Floyd. Yeah. Well, that, that would, that would be the counter argument. And I, and I, I know I think it's a solid
2: <laughs> counter argument because there is wisdom in that. I mean, that is the, you know, that's the complexity and nuance that in some ways I do try to uh, address in my book agency. because I do see these two meta narratives that I think apply here, right? The kind of what I call the blame the system versus the blame the victim narrative, right? In the blame the system narrative, that's what you hear most of, particularly from the progressive left, which basically says, you know, it's the systems, it's the lack, you know, America itself is this oppressive nation that based on your race or your gender or some other immutable characteristic the systems are rigged against you. You know George Floyd never had a shot, right? He probably didn't have access to great schools. The schools that he did have access to were pretty crappy. He may have lived in a situation that had lots of deprivation, right? And that is that is the blame the system to the core argument. There's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. Capitalism itself is evil. And these systems are so rigged, so discriminatory, so powerful, That you, and let's put on race, is you as a young Black person have no shot in this system, right? In addition, though, there is this other narrative that I am very empathetic to, which is part of the reason I run schools, which is the blame the victim narrative, right? And that narrative says, you're responsible. You you know, you're responsible for your own failure. You know, you didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? You didn't take advantage of all the opportunities that America has laid out in front of you. The problem with that narrative, of course, is that it's really hard to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps if you were born into an unstable family, not supported by a faith community, don't have access to school choice. The situation around you potentially is bleak, right? And so we have to have an empowering alternative. The blame the system and the blame the victim narrative. Because I think what you just laid out, um, Glenn, is we have to acknowledge that there are kids growing up in that kind of situation that you just described. George Floyd. That doesn't mean that George Floyd isn't still ultimately responsible for the actions that he took on that day. But we do have to be cognizant of the conditions that we all should be working towards. And that's why I put forth agency and this framework around free family, religion education and entrepreneurship as my you know i can't just shout in the rain i have to put forth my empowering alternative for young people to embrace to get far different
0: outcomes than george floyd did can i ask you something ian um george floyd i don't remember the conditions i'm making this up i'm making him an archetype george floyd has a sister i'm just guessing and George Floyd's sister works as a school teacher, or George Floyd's sister works as a security guard, or George Floyd's sister is some sort of entrepreneur. George went a different way. We see that with this kind of Black family all the time. What is it that George Floyd's sister, in quotation marks, did that he didn't? My thought is always that part of it is what the Black community has been taught to see as a norm, not as ideal, but as a norm. I think there's a lack of a basic recoil towards a certain direction that there used to be more of you Now, nobody was perfect in 1950 but there was more of a recoil among more people towards going in a certain direction and things changed in the late 60s what is it that his sister did that he didn't and how can we teach more people to do what his sister did or he has a brother who's a security guard and is doing just fine or he's a plumber but george kind of went the wrong way what what happened
2: I mean, it's a hypothetical, but if we are to hypothesize, um, I mean, both the sister and the brother, you both described as being employed. So that um, is a fundamental that they're working. And so inherent in that is a certain level of dignity and discipline that comes along with having to show up for a job on time. Um, it's likely that, um, again, this is a hypothetical, but I would imagine that if they, um, did not have a child outside of marriage, that would have put them in a dramatically different situation than I think George Floyd, who I do believe had children outside of marriage. Um, And again, that single fact doesn't necessarily condemn someone to a life of horror. We know there are many stories of kids being born into single-parent homes who become successful while there are people born to married two-parent households who are not successful but the data is overwhelming if you look at the profile. And when you talk about norms, I mean, in the black family, as as you guys talk about all the time, you talk about 1950, that's when the marriage rates amongst the black community were, I believe, even higher than that of the white community. They were on a decline at that point, unfortunately, because of new norms and some argue welfare policies starting in the 60s that actually started to create perverse incentives around things like marriage. And the responsibility of work, and finishing your education. I mean, all these things um, matter a lot. And again, I, you know, I, I I try to write about these things in agency, not in a way to be um, um, I don't know punitive,
0: censorious. Yeah, you never are, right? Yeah, so. you know,
2: because because a I don't think that that helps win people to your side. You know, I try to show empathy mm-hmm. for. You know, I'll, again, I'll say it for George Floyd's life beforehand. I mean, the guy, as I understand it, was a convicted felon or he uh, armed robbery of a pregnant woman. I mean, I don't know if these things are true, but these are certainly me- the media reports. That kind of behavior des- deserves to be, you know, incarcerated and and. But again, we should be able to do two things at the same time, which is to penalize behavior which is completely antisocial and dangerous, while also understanding the conditions that led to it and hold people accountable. I run schools because I want my students to know that they can do hard things, that there are pathways to prosperity, even under tough conditions, but there's some ways that are better than others, right? And, and I'm happy to talk through all of it,
1: um, but... Let's talk through it. What, what, I want to ask you, what's so special about marriage?
2: What is so special about marriage?
1: Um, Yeah. Isn't what matters, excuse me, just to amplify, the resources available to the child, the roles of parenting, which, I mean, if you look at some of the Scandinavian countries, for example, where marital rates have fallen and out-of-wedlock birth rates are relatively high, you don't see the same kind of, quote, pathology, close quote, as you see in lower-class minority American communities, um, is it a spiritual point? Is it a is it a normative point, a values point? Are you saying people are behaving better? I mean, what what's so special about marriage? You know, it, there is a values point, and I and I've and I've and I've become more um,
2: certain or courageous in saying that that's part of the rationale. Like, it's not just economic. However, economics do matter. You know, you have two earners, two time providers, two love providers to children, which just make a difference relative to single-parent households. Um, and it is not to be lost on people that in the Black community, the poverty rate amongst married Black people has been in the single digits for generations. So, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who, again, again, I'm sure you all know well, one of your people with three names, um, you know, lead author for the New York Times 1619 Project, She wrote in her 8,000-word essay, What is owed? it doesn't matter what black people can do, what they're told to do to lift themselves out of poverty. Doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you get a job, doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you save. None of those things can overcome 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote. Now, of course, the irony is Nicole Hannah-Jones has done all of those things in her own life, and is leading quite a prosperous life and good for her, good for her, but to, but to recognize the huge value that marriage has played not only in the black community, but across cultures. And what we're seeing now is the non-marital birth rate, particularly amongst women 24 and under, it's 71 percent across the country. It's 61 percent in the white in the white community, right? It's devastating. This is now an equal. I think that's
1: too high. You think it's too high? I mean, I don't know the number right in front of me, but I believe sixty-one would be too high for whites. But we could look it up. It's easy. It's easy to check. Women
2: twenty-four and under. Women twenty-four and under. Oh, okay. Because my particular interest. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, my particular interest. No, this is an important point because there's a big difference today. If there's a thirty-eight-year-old woman who's been working on Wall Street who's decided to have a child independently. One can feel a certain way about that outcome. My particular interest is in young people who are making their passageway into young adulthood. The series of decisions, particularly between ages 15 to 24, that have lifelong consequences. So that's why I look at 24 and under rates. And in the, for black women, 24 and under, the non-marital birth rate is 91%. It's 61% in the white community, 71% overall. These kind of numbers are just staggering. They need to be known, and we need to share what the consequences of those kinds of decisions lead to for the parent as well as the child.
1: So uh, here's an objection. I'm playing the devil's advocate. Resourceful people, that is people who have their shit together, People who are disciplined, people who have the ability of of, of, uh, denial, of restraint, of of orderly focus in their lives do two things. They get and hold a job because they're resourceful people with skills, and they manage their interpersonal relationships such that they end up securing partners uh, with whom they can have children. Both of those things are a consequence of the root cause, which is that the people are resourceful disciplined individuals. You need to cause people to be resourceful individuals before you can get either of those things. The association that you're calling attention to, the married people do better, is a confounding of those two influences. The married people do better because the married people, quote, are better. That is to say, there are more effective and disciplined persons. If I take a gangbanger out of uh, the the four trade disciples in Chicago living in a housing project. And I take an 18-year-old mother who didn't finish high school, who's his girlfriend. They're still gangbanger out of the four trade disciple housing project and 18-year-old poorly educated young mother. Making them married doesn't change any of those things. Yep. And therefore is not a solution to the problem. You have fetishized an institution which is the product, not the cause.
2: Yep, Glenn. So my response to that is, how about we try to reach those same people, the 18 year old, well before they develop the habits of mind that have put them in the situation that you're describing, which is almost, that you're describing is almost irreversible. That's why I run schools. I define agency. Right. My definition of agency is the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The idea being that every young person has the ability to make decisions for themselves. The question is, how are you going to wield, how are you going to exercise your free will? So think of agency like a vector or velocity, where it's velocity is not just speed. Its speed and direction. So, how do young people make the kinds of decisions starting at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 to put them in in a position to self regulate, what you call discipline? I've just launched Vertex Partnership Academies. The core virtues of our school are courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. For temperance, Self-regulation, you just said delayed gratification, all of those things. So, question: How do we build that kind of environment as a deliberate intent, a part of a school system, and a part of a a support structure for young people? And that, and in my view, that comes from free family, religion, education, entrepreneurship. So, just taking family, I'm a big proponent of the success sequence, which, as many of your viewers probably know, is data that says. If a young person just finishes their high school degree, then they get a full-time job of any kind, just so they learn the dignity and discipline of work. And if they have children, marriage first, 97% of, of young people who follow that series of decisions avoid poverty, and the vast majority enter the middle class. It's not a guarantee. As I've said, there are always exceptions on all sides. But what, but, me, but what if we started teaching that excuse me in but what if you started that that 18 year old those kinds of things well before they're gang banging they weren't kids weren't born in the gang
1: right I, i'm sorry I, and and i don't mean to be obstreperous here but you're not addressing my point yes if you have kids who do the things that you were talking about doing they're not going to be poor it doesn't follow from that that if I take kids and uh, who are otherwise undis- I mean, I'm making a resourceful kid. I'm making a resilient kid. I'm making a self-disciplined kid. I- I- I'm-, I'm making an effective person. That person does a lot of things. They marry. Th- they have their children after marriage. And they find jobs. Uh, and they stay out of trouble with the law. Those are the consequences of having made them an effective person. Mm-hmm. They're not the causes of them being an effective person. That's the point I'm making. You you talk about the success sequence as if there were a formula. You can succeed in life if you do the following things. And what I'm saying is, I think there may be a fallacy there, just as a matter of logic. You will succeed in life, and when, when you're an effective person, and when you're an effective person, these are the things that you will be doing. You'll be succeeding in life on your job, you'll be succeeding in life in terms of being a good citizen. You'll be succeeding in life in terms of being a good parent. And all of that came from the fact that you had a very good moral and uh, cognitive education at a very fine school. Fine, I'm for building such schools. I applaud you 100% for doing so. Um, but you, you you will be creating effective people about whom a number of things will be true, but you will not have demonstrated a causal connection between those things and Uh, the successful outcome right
2: so i actually perhaps maybe unlike other proponents i actually don't see causality in the way that causality is usually um i think referred to meaning that someone can do quote unquote all the right things and still not be successful it's like life is probability right so we have a class called pathways to power in that class we're going to say Regardless of your conditions that you're currently living in, here are the series of decisions you're going to face in your your life. You're going to be making decisions about relationships. You're going to be making decisions about education, about work, about the timing of family formation. Here are some series of decisions where the data shows the resultant life conditions is X, you'll avoid poverty, or the resultant life conditions are Y, you'll be more likely to be in poverty or other outcomes. And ultimately, we say to each young person, it's your choice. There is no guarantee, regardless of the situation that you are born into. But all we can give young people is the best information to make decisions for their own life and a sense of agency, that their decisions matter. So if they take all this information still make the kinds of decisions that you're talking about that put them on the wrong track, that is going to happen. That is the freedom. That, that, that's, the, that's the price of freedom, you know? I mean, unfortunately, we are going to have people of all races who make quote unquote good decisions and we're gonna have people of all races who make quote unquote bad decisions. That's the price of a free society. And so I think sometimes um, people want, you know, we want equity or we want the same outcomes, we want everyone to be great. Everyone won't be great. And I think the best we can do is provide a moral structure, the collective wisdom of what we know to be true about what a life of flourishing usually means. In my my observation, that's usually strong family, strong faith commitment, strong access to education, and work and entrepreneurship. That's what my observation has been. And I feel an obligation to teach that to young people, and hopefully they follow suit but there's no guarantee. I don't, I don't know if that that addresses your question, but
1: go ahead. No, you, you're a teacher and you're defending a pedagogical posture that you've adopted that you think will lead to people being more effective in their lives, and I'm for that. And I'm a social scientist who is a little bit prickly about what I take to be causal statements that the data don't necessarily support, and it's a technical point that uh, probably shouldn't detain us uh, very much. I mean, here, here, let me, I'm, I'm sorry, John. I know you're getting ready to say something. I'm going to just for one more thing. You should marry because it's the right thing to do. You should order your life in accordance with deep commitments of faith because it's a better path in life. You should pursue education because it allows you to realize your full human potential. And you should not sit on your ass. You should get out and be busy working, building, creating. These are virtues. They are not formulas. They're, they're not instruments to succeed in life. They are better ways of living. To the extent that we sell them based on a formula for success, to some degree we concede a really important ethical point, which is right living is its own reward. Wow.
2: Ian, I, Ian, I have... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was... I was- basking in Glenn's wisdom right there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. Ian, I have a, this is, this is a question, but it's, it's a slightly long question. The, um, the one obstacle that I would wonder what you thought about was the tacit sense that to do the things you're talking about is not the black thing to do. I don't think any black person over 30 thinks this, but a great many people under 20 do. And I'm not sure I have the answer as to how to cut through it. A lot of it is what Orlando Patterson calls the cool pose and you know is violently dismissed by every black social scientist, but we all know that that's real. And you know I was listening to an episode of the national public radio show, This American Life the other day. You have to listen to the other side. And I was kind of trapped in the car. And so I was listening to them and they're covering three black or Latino or kind of Black tino teenagers who are given opportunities to go to Ivy or close to Ivy League colleges. And with one of them, she works really hard and she's the kind of person you're talking about. And it works out. With the other two, it doesn't quite. And this is not nineteen sixty-six. We're talking about people today. And they interview these these kids who are now grown-ups. They are, you know, bright, articulate people. And predictably, you know, this white progressive show is trying to imply without hitting you over the head with it, that the system did these kids in, that there was just too much that they couldn't deal with. They weren't raised in the right way. They were raised with limited opportunities. These schools are white enclaves full of people who don't understand them. How could we have expected the two who didn't make it to do any better? But you can listen between the lines and you could see that both of them as kids and also, I think, maybe as grown-ups, but as kids. They were infected by a certain sense of the white world as alien and menacing, which is a little bit beyond anything that they were going through now. We're not talking about how they would have been treated in a white school in 1975. This is now. And, you know, at Fieldston, how many people were really giving them racist shade today as opposed to 40 years ago? And you can kind of tell that both of them had a a basic sense that real blackness is somehow different. From what all of these people with blue eyes do, and I couldn't help thinking that had to have played a part. And it also reminded me of conversations I listened to black teenagers having on the train in New York City all the time. And there's a certain kind of person listening to this saying, "There he goes with an anecdote." But if I told an anecdote about how one cop bopped me over the head, that would be right. That would be a universal story, nation. exactly. Yep, universal yep. truth. So in this case, I remember I was watching. He, he's 17, I'm assuming. He's a black kid talking to a black girl. They were having a very lively and even profound conversation. But what she was saying was she was resisting the gang-banging attitude. And this guy said, and he wasn't particularly hood himself, which made this even more poignant. He said, well, you know, I guess I'm just going to have to be black by myself. And he didn't know anybody was listening. But what he meant was that it's black to be a thug. And that's and he's not rare. You know, he's not an anecdote. He's he's, an, he's a whole ethos. What do you do about that? Because what a lot of kids are thinking is to do all these polite things is to not be a proper black person. It's to be disloyal. And what makes it worse is that a lot of them would deny it if you said it. But that is what they're thinking.
2: How do you cut through that? Yeah, so um, you know, so I'm, I am a Jamaican immigrant, right? So my parents came to the United States in the mid to late 1960s you know, during all sorts of tumult. They had eyes wide open in terms of what they were stepping into, in terms of all the racial strife riots, everything going on. But they still came to this country believing there was opportunity here. And, um, oh, there you go, old school. Um, I will always remember my dad saying that in Jamaica, he was a man. He was a man. It wasn't until he came to the United States that he realized he was a black and that had real meaning and frankly he tried every which way to ensure that I never adopted this idea of being a black man in the way that it was associated because to be a black man meant that you didn't strive. Again, in, in, the, in this very negative way, because I'm very proud of our heritage and who we are as people, but in the way that it is often presumed, I think is what you're talking about, a black man doesn't strive to excel, doesn't strive to be a great father, and that's a trope that's horrific and terrible, and we should be doing everything to destroy it. But it is interesting, it's real. I mean I, and I, you know when my dad used to say it, I didn't quite get it at the beginning, but as I started to rise in my own experience of what it meant to be black in this country, you know, I mean, and, and, and by the way, it's perpetuated in lots of different ways. Because um, there's, there's, there's always this undercurrent of black being the inferior position, right? Oh, so yeah. um, just two weeks ago, the National Assessment for Educational Progress came out, the nation's report card. To reveal the reading out, reading and math outcomes for nine-year-olds across the country, and the reason this one was important was that it was done just. It was also done right before the pandemic, so it was our first real evidence to see what has been the impact of all these closures and. And it turned out the data is pretty terrible, right? But I didn't see there's a Forbes story on it. But the only thing the 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 so reading outcomes decline significantly. But in almost every story, the point that's made is that the gap between black and white students widen, right? Always creating this narrative, damn, those black kids are always in this inferior position, certainly relative to whites. But what's almost, and so that's a real gap, that's a real disparity, and I have thoughts on what we should be doing about that, like running great schools and such. But we never acknowledge the fact that the majority of white nine-year-olds can't read in this country. And it's almost always setting up this dynamic where the white standard is the standard and black kids are trying to reach it. I have no interest in a block of black kids equaling the performance of a block of white kids when white kid performance is mediocre. That's universal mediocrity. And so there is, there's always this undercurrent of, yeah, being black is, is always less than. And, you know, I'm trying to crush, trying to crush that ideology. You know, in mm-hmm. the schools I lead, we only have black and Hispanic kids, right? We're not, we're not, we're not mm-hmm. waiting for a group of white kids to show up to suddenly have a great education, right? Yeah. Ian, tell us, where are these schools? So for the last decade, the schools I led, those were elementary and middle schools. They were in the South Bronx and the Lower East Side of Manhattan, um, all through eighth grade. And that was amazing. And we did some wonderful things, you know, but it's also heartbreaking. You know, every year we had nearly 5,000 kids on our wait list, you know, almost all low-income kids, almost all black and Hispanic. And, you know, our first classes are now finishing college in schools like Yale and Howard. And it's, you know, it's really wonderful. Um, but one of the things I, the the yearly challenge when our kids ended at 8th grade was the question of where do they go to high school? Because in New York City, it is, um, you know, it's a beast. In the district where we just, in District uh, 12 in the Bronx, where we just launched our school and an old Catholic school building that had been empty for 10 years, the of the ninth graders that started um, in 2015 at these high schools in the in the city only seven percent four years later graduated from high school ready for college meaning that they started ninth grade and dropped out or they actually did earn their high school diploma four years later but still could not do math nor reading without remediation which is just it's criminal right but this has been going on for generations so i determined to create now launching a new network of high schools a charter management organization that runs international baccalaureate high schools organized around the four cardinal virtues of courage justice temperance and wisdom and you know dedicated to the idea of democratic discourse viewpoint diversity you know individual dignity equal opportunity not racial equity equal opportunity for individuals um
0: well all the kids are black and hispanic as you told us yes ian ian i'm afraid that by 11th grade in that school this is the going to be the most cynical asshole thing i've ever said <laughs> going to get quoted
1: oh i doubt that john but all right, go okay, ahead
2: I'm, I'm, <laughs> so we're already we're going to get this on tape so whatever you're about to say
1: well, yeah. we've got some whoppers to compare it to, so go ahead. <laughs>
0: By eleventh grade, nine out of ten of the kids are going to have Caribbean or African parents. That's what I'm afraid of. So actually, it's a ve- you
2: know, John, you know, that's so interesting. You say that. Um,
0: that's frankly what I'm afraid of, because of what I was just talking about. That the cool pose, what it is to be black, it affects we natives. I think more than kids with immigrant.
1: Well, what, what about
0: that, Ian? It's, who are the kids a, in your
2: school? Yeah, I mean, um, so for the black kids, I mean, I will say um, there is definitely a West African population, Caribbean population. We do have, you know, um, you know, more more traditional Black Americans who whose lineage is has been in this country for many years. But I, I will not deny that what you're raising is a challenge. In general, one could argue. Against charter schools, right? You know, because again, I try to understand all of these arguments. Some argue that the relative success of charter schools, and not all charter schools are successful, but there's some that are quite powerful. But some would argue that's because of parent selection of, you know, parents who are pre motivated yeah. even to go out there and find a charter school. So it's quite possible. Um, you know, I, I and and it's even relevant to the uh, even the Harvard case that's going on with the Supreme Court. When you look at you know kids, you know the kids getting into elite co- black kids, <laughs> they're often you know immigrant, you know children of immigrants, and and um, and so yeah. it's not even clear that that's what affirmative that's the kind of black person that affirmative action was even created for in the first place. So it's a legitimate argument. You know, I the way I deal with it, frankly, is I I don't know. Just build more schools in the the sense of at some point, because at the end of the day, look, I've never had um, um, parents, you know, tell me that, you know, Mr. Rowe, please ensure that your curriculum teaches my kids about all the victimhood that they're, you know, that they're necessarily going to have to succumb to in this life. You know, we had nearly 5000 kids on our wait list at the network i used to lead, there's 60,000 kids on the wait list in new york writ large for charter schools so you know may you may be right um you may be right that the the majority of kids are coming from and by the way i can give you a few different characteristics immigrants religious we see it we see a strong particularly in the hispanic community we see a large component of religious families that are seeking out higher education opportunities. In fact, I will, I will even confess, as a charter school leader, part of the demise of Catholic schools over the last two decades has really been a function of the rise of tuition-free charter schools mm. that are safe, that are often organized around core values that has had an adverse impact on Catholic schools that charge tuition. My hope is to expand the pie. So even more, especially in the last two years, when Catholic schools have done really well in terms of providing high quality education in person. But uh, so you may be right two years from now. But my answer is, okay, well, then let's just build more great high schools so that there's enough seats for people of all Mm -hmm. backgrounds, because success breeds success. Um you know, success academy
1: how, how many seats are there? Excuse so, me, Ian. Right. Uh, you say sixty thousand waiting lists citywide. I guess there's close to a million students in New York city's public schools. Right. sixty thousand is a six percent. What's the capacity of the charter school ensemble in the city of New York? How many
2: well, right now, altogether, right, so I think right now in New York City, there's about two hundred twenty charter schools educating. About one hundred twenty thousand kids, and and again, okay. you know, there was sixty thousand on the wait list. This was as of twenty nineteen, with with COVID and all that. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but it's high. But the the the, the constraint when you say the capacity, right now it doesn't matter because there's a cap on charter schools. You can't open brand new schools. If we had no cap, the number of education entrepreneurs like me who have great ideas, who want to go into communities where only 7% of kids who are graduating from high school ready for college would explode positively. So I can't even answer the question of what's the capacity because there's an artificial constraint that's been imposed by teachers, unions, and others that is impeding the ability to provide a fantastic education for low-income kids of all races in our city.
1: Let's talk about life insurance. It's important to understand the value of life insurance. I know this from my personal experience. I'm a man in my seventies. I have remarried a younger woman in her fifties. I have to think about how she will manage when I'm gone. The value of life insurance makes a big difference You might ask, why get life insurance? After all, we pay hundreds of dollars per year to protect our homes, our cars, even our phones. But too many of us aren't taking steps to protect our families' finances. There are mortgage payments, private student loans, and other types of debt that won't disappear if something happens to you. A life insurance policy can provide your loved ones with a financial cushion that they can use to cover those costs and it can provide you with peace of mind that even in a worst case scenario, they'll be protected. Even if you already have coverage at work, you might want to think about supplementing that. Having life insurance through your job may not be enough. Most people need up to 10 times more coverage to properly provide for their families. And coverage through work isn't portable. If you leave your job, the policy doesn't go with you, meaning a gap in coverage when you need it most. You should think about getting life insurance coverage now. Inflation is driving up prices for just about everything lately. But life insurance rates are actually going down from this time last year. And since life insurance typically gets more expensive as you age, that means now is a great time to buy. By making it easy to compare your options and get a good price from top companies, Policy Genius can help you make sure you're not paying a cent more than you have to for the coverage that you need. Here's how it works Policy Genius is an insurance marketplace that makes it easy to compare quotes from top companies like AIG and Prudential in one place to find your lowest price on life insurance. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Options start at just $17 per month for $500,000 of coverage. Just click the link in the description or head to PolicyGenius.com to get personalized quotes in minutes and find the right policy for your needs. The licensed agents at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies. They're on hand through the entire process to help you understand your options so you can make decisions with confidence. Policy Genius doesn't add on extra fees. Your personal information is private. Policy Genius doesn't sell your details to third parties. Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance and has placed over 150 billion in coverage so head to policygenius.com to get your life insurance quotes free and see how much you could save i'm going to ask you another question and i don't mean to be rude where does the money come from that's not rude That's not rude you need money to run schools right exactly i want to know and and to open school you say you open in a network of high schools notwithstanding the cap
2: yes i want to have
1: many who's financing i want to have many
2: schools (laughs) um so the way the charter school um financing works is that first of all charter schools are public schools so that's that's an important um fact to establish there are traditional district schools There are magnet schools, there are specialized high schools like Stuyvesant or Brooklyn Tech, where I went to school, and then there are charter schools, public charter schools. All these schools are public schools. So that's very, very, very important to establish, which means that every single kid comes with a certain amount of funding per pupil. It turns out for charter school kids, it's about 75 to 80% of what you would get for a traditional district school. So we're still underfunded. But no bother. We'll, I mean, we, we, we want equity there, but no bother. You know, we'll, we're, we're still fighting for funding parity, but we still want to demonstrate that over time, what happens is when you start a school, let's say you start an elementary school with kindergarten and first grade, you still have an infrastructure of a principal, an assistant principal, guidance counselor, teachers, blah, 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 blah. But, so, but the number of kids that you have isn't enough to pay for the entire enterprise. So every charter school has to build to a certain number of students until you hit um, a certain threshold. Uh, and, then, and then the beauty is, then that school can exist in perpetuity on public dollars, demonstrating that you can get exceptional academic outcomes for an even lower uh, amount per pupil, given that charter schools are underfunded. So that, that gap of time before you're you're at this number of students, you need to get to this number of students to reach self-sustainability. That's where philanthropy comes into play. So we've received funding. You know, there's some usual suspects, but the Walton Foundation, Charter School Growth Fund, we've been supported by a number of high net worth individuals. And the thing about our school, you know, we, as you might imagine, like you won't see a DEI initiative at our school. Right? We're dedicated to equality of opportunity, individual dignity, our common humanity. We're not looking to break up our students by, well, the white kid. well, if we have white kids, <laughs> but, we're not, but we're not, you know, we're not doing privilege walks in our school yeah. where we're breaking people up by race. Yeah. We're doing PD. And so there's some funders who, if they don't see that, they're like, eh, you're not, you know, you're not anti-racist enough for us. But then there are a whole bunch of other funders who say, wow, maybe we can actually create an environment where we can have democratic discourse, viewpoint diversity around contentious issues. We can educate kids as individuals who have unbelievable potential, not curtailed by their race. So you gotta, you know, so you have to go out and find the funders. Um, that uh will help you and so i call that i call this this amount of money the aid us it's a, it's a few million dollars you know you got to go out and raise the money the approved interim deficit until self-sustainability aid us <laughs> 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 and,
1: okay <laughs> so the kids come with their money but not 100 percent of the money that they would come with if they went to a, a conventional public school right. And the gap is covered with philanthropy, at least until you get to a certain scale where you can be self-sustaining. And you mentioned unions. Oof. Let me just say, well, teachers are. (laughs) (laughs) Go on.
2: Teachers are lifeblood. We love teachers. Highly prepared, highly effective teachers, along with a great principal, can make all the difference in the world. There's a big difference between teachers. And the institutions like teacher unions that represent them, and uh, we unfortunately have just had a, um, an altercation uh, with the UFT, which is the you know one of the two big uh, teachers unions here in New York, where they sued us. They actually sued us to block the opening of Vertex Partnership Academies, because as I mentioned earlier, there's a cap on charters. You can't open new charter schools. But what you can do is that every charter school again, this, these are some details, but I think they're actually important for folks to understand, which is that if you open a charter school, let's say K to five, an elementary school, and you do well, the last thing you want to do is that at the end of fifth grade, you want to send your kids back out into the same schools that many of your families were trying to escape from. So you typically apply for an extension. You go from K to five to K to eight. And your state authorizer evaluates your performance and then says, yes, you can now educate middle school students. The vast majority of charter schools end at eighth grade because high school is a completely different beast. It's more expensive, more complex. You need teachers with more subject matter knowledge. It's just a different animal. So so all these charters basically have underutilized capacity from grades at grades nine through 12, right? So I said, um, and and in fact, in New York City, there are about 186 uh, charter elementary schools, only 29 go all the way through 12th grade. So the vast majority of kids, even if they're getting a good education in elementary and middle school in the charter world, they're thrust back into what I call the abyss at the high school. level. So I came up with the idea to say, well, what if, Existing charter schools that currently end at eighth grade, like the one I used to lead, said, we're going to extend through 12th grade, and then we're going to partner with a new entity, Vertex Partnership Academies, to now run a world-class international baccalaureate high school for our rising ninth grade. Completely legal, elegant, beautiful, because, because for the schools that were only running through eighth grade, they don't want the burden of actually running a high school, but they want the ability to provide a guaranteed option to their kids. And so that's what we did. And uh the unions came after us and they said, no, you're trying to get around the the cap, you're breaking the law, you're bad people, you know. Um so we had this hanging over us for months that the unions because you know to some degree I think the unions they have a budget for frivolous lawsuits. So it you know, they know that even having a lawsuit will hurt, um, you know, people who may want to give funding or even parents that want to go to school. It's like, oh, no, there's a union suing you. But the good news is that on August 16th, uh, a New York State Supreme Court judge heard the, or. well, I, actually, August 15th was the day he heard the arguments. August 16th was the day he issued the ruling, which said the case <laughs> is completely dismissed. The union had no standing to even bring the suit in the first place. The union can't close a school that's been authorized by the state of New York. And then he went further and he said, you're claiming that this organization is trying to break the law by getting around the charter cap? No, every single charter school has the right to extend, to do what's called a grade extension. So these schools are fully in their right to partner with A-Vertex Partnership Academies, if they want to run a great high school and outsource its execution, so in this sort of jujitsu move, the fact that the unions did this overreach has reaffirmed a right that many charter schools weren't uh, knowing that they could really exercise. And so we are now the union slayers, or at least I'll I'll, I'll take that I'll take that that um that uh, description on.
1: But it, you know I have a question. Yeah. Congratulations. So, my question is 50,000 citywide, 60,000 on a waiting list. That's a lot of families who can't get in because of a cat. That looks like fodder for political movement to me. Well, you know, organize those people to get to the state assembly and say, What the heck is going on? Whose side are you on? We're the families with the kids. We want what we want, and we're not getting it.
2: So, you know, when people say, well, there's systemic racism, there's institutional racism, there's structural racism. It's, it's interesting. There are systemic barriers, right? You know, some like Bob Woodson say, well, yeah, you know, a time there was when racism was enshrined into law, you could really point to structural racism, per se. This is an example of true, a true systemic barrier because the, it, it's affecting kids of all races, frankly. right? But it's a true systemic barrier. So that's why when I say like blame the system is an ideology that's generally flawed, there are some systemic barriers that we need to address. And I'm, on it, I'm determined to bring the case that you just said, Glenn. How can it be that 60,000 kids, primarily low-income, primarily Black and Hispanic, who all they want is a good shot for their kid to be told, sorry, You've got to go to the same school that for generations only 7% are graduating from high school ready for college. It's the greatest crime that's happening. And yet, you know, we're, we're wasting time. Like, let's just, you know, forgive student loans or all these stupid policies that actually hurt children. And meanwhile, there are people who want to do the right thing with their kids, regardless of the decisions that they may have made in their own lives. And we have a bureaucratic, stranglehold. And unfortunately, not all the people who are imposing this stranglehold are lily white, if you know what I mean.
0: And it's very frustrating. But I'm de- and the whole charter movement is associated with being a Republican. And so for many people who only have so much opportunity to think about it, they figure they're supposed to be against it because Republicans like it. And if you're a certain kind of ideologue, you figure our job is to make the public schools better. Although nobody has any real formula for how you could do that at scale in less than 50 yep. years. And so we end up sitting in that holding. Yeah.
2: Imagine you're the 22-year-old mom of a five-year-old. And whatever mm-hmm. decision you made in your own life, you want your five-year-old to have a shot. And to be told, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. The public schools, yeah, they'll be good like 50 years from now. Support the public schools, right. Yeah, You know, by sending your kid to a school that you almost know with certainty with certainty is not gonna educate your kid well. How is that justice? Yeah. And uh, it's very frustrating when institutions that purport to represent the interests primarily of low income or low income or black and brown kids aren't taking this on and in fact are taking the other side. That is very frustrating and I think we have to call it out. You know, this is trench yeah. warfare and I run schools because I care about our kids. And it's very frustrating when I see people who, you know, look like me who are on the other side of the table.
1: Okay, schools. What about the more general political climate on racial issues? We started off talking about uh, uh, Rodney King and George Floyd and all of that.
0: Glenn, and, we're yeah. running up against when I need to get on the train and go to work. I think oh. to put something <laughs> okay, so well, mundane into it.
1: Then I mean we're at about an hour and uh, we can conclude the conversation, John. If you need to take off and carry on Gosh, on another occasion, very part quickly. two. Mm-hmm. We
2: could be on for hours. Yeah,
1: um, yeah. It did go. It did go very quickly. Um, so so when I oh, can,
0: if there's just one more, I can hold on for that. Yeah, because I want to hear what you're going
1: to say. Ian and I were both at a conference in Dallas, Texas, that gave me hope at the old Parkland Conference Center. Uh, which Harlan Crowe, the industrialist, has stood up in uh, Dallas. It's a very elegant and uh, wonderful place celebrating American civilization. A bunch of thinkers and doers, some of us black, some of us white, uh, came together to share ideas about uh, which way forward uh, for elevating the circumstances of people of African descent in this country. And, uh, it was, it was a very moving event celebrating the life of Thomas Sowell, the conservative economist whose many books on these issues have been enlightening for many of us, uh, and enjoying the company of Justice Clarence Thomas, who attended the entire conference and made a few remarks. Uh, there were many interesting people there and Ian and I were part of the organizing committee that consisted also of, uh, Shelby Steele and, um, Jason Riley, uh, Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal. Indeed, thank you. Sorry, Jason. (laughs) And uh, I just thought you might make a few comments since you were right at the center of it. And the follow up on the conference in terms of putting out uh, videos of people's speeches and what the next steps might be and whatnot. Can we talk about that a little bit in the next five or 10 minutes? Yeah.
2: Thank you for raising it. I mean, as you said, it was a homage to Thomas Sowell, who back in 1980. Was already seeing signs of. Incredible levels of black progress that had occurred throughout the early 1900s through the 50s was slowly starting to decline, if not stall. And why was that? And he started looking at a number of the policies that had been implemented in the 1960s and 70s. And he had the audacity to ask the question could it be that maybe some of these policies have actually slowed down our progress? And I may not have the right answer, but can we at least have a conversation? that there might be empowering alternatives that can accelerate this progress within the Black community and probably the, the plight of others, because if we were to look at that as an example. So he, in 1980, at the Fairmont Conference in in the Fairmont Hotel in California, he held something. It's, it's more known as the Fairmont Conference, but it's also known as the Empowering Alternatives Conference. He got... Together, as Glenn said, uh, Justice, a young Justice Thomas, who well, he wasn't a Justice then, a young Clarence <laughs> Thomas, uh, Bob Woodson, Milton Friedman, some amazing researchers to, to talk about crime, employment, education, particularly as related to the Black community, to talk about alternatives. And it was it was a big thing back then to have, you know, 100-plus more center-right-leaning um, black people talking about these issues.
0: There's film of it online. There is film of it,
2: and and maybe we'll add that to links for this. Um, But the one challenge to that conference, and I think Justice Thomas and and Professor Sowell will say the same, is that the ideas, the ideas that were discussed didn't gain enough traction in the communities that we were all concerned with. So 40 years later, as you say, Glenn, me, Shelby Steele, and Jason Riley, you know, I, I, I felt like a little, <laughs> a little, a little uh, player amongst these giants, you know, hope, so, ah. so hopefully I held my own. But, um, you did. but we put on the old Parkland Conference, and it was incredible. And it was Hoover Institution, Manhattan Institute, and American Enterprise Institute um, who said, let's do a similar thing. With the incredible levels of progress, what have we learned over the course of these 40 years and again we'll we'll put the links in um to uh, so people can watch the videos in fact Glenn you and I and Bob Woodson actually did a conversation with Peter Robinson
1: for we uncommon did, knowledge for his uncommon knowledge yes. uh, podcast and
2: it's already been viewed more than i think 400,000 times so there's some yeah. great 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 ideas
1: so we'll link not only to Peter Robinson's interview of me, Bob, and Ian, but also to the material online about the Parkland yes. Conference. And if we can find it, to the, to the original what little snippets there are of the original Fairmont yes. Conference 1980.
2: And so let me end with this, which is my biggest concern as we were going into that event was what happens afterwards. Because it's quite an amazing thing to get people together for three days and talk about these panels. And you know, we have Ralph Mangoal talking about uh, crime. Um, uh, uh, we had um, oh my god uh, from Harvard. Oh my gosh. I don't. Roland, Roland Fryer. Fryer. I mean, just we had amazing people um, talking about a range of issues for where we're seeing progress or not. And so what I'm doing, I know all of us are doing things in our own right, but American Enterprise Institute, partly in relation to my book, agency in this framework called free. We're launching a free initiative to have a series of events around the country to have what I'm hoping to be a catalytic impact. So the first one will be in Birmingham, Alabama, November 2nd through the 4th, where we're getting together local leaders in Birmingham who may or may not be connected, but around what do we know about human flourishing and the institutions of family, religion, education and entrepreneurship to drive greater outcomes locally. Then we're having another, the next one will be in Salt Lake City in late March to demonstrate that no particular group of people have a, uh, a monopoly over the issues facing our local communities. And so um, this is what I, this is what I, um, I and AEI and others will be doing as, as sort of how do we bring the ideas to the people? I really hope my career to the degree that I'm remembered is someone hopefully who could do what we're doing right now, which is have the intellectual discussions about these important issues, but then take on the challenge of bringing those ideas into reality, running schools, bringing together local leaders, organizing these efforts in communities. That's the only way we're gonna change. That's the way I remain optimistic about our work. We have to do in addition to everything we discuss.
1: Excellent. That's Ian Rowe, American Enterprise Institute, charter school founder and a leader in the effort to empower people to fulfill their full human potential, people of all races and creeds. Family, religion, education, education and entrepreneurship. entrepreneurship. Get the book, Agency. Thanks a lot, Ian. Thanks, guys, that was amazing. Thank you, Ian.